Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. In this age of consumerism, instant gratification, and information, it's often hard to think about something as abstract as the meaning of life. The ideas of birth, death, and infinity, which used to introduce a popular television show of the early 60s, are ideas seldom thought about today. Yet they're questions that human beings have been asking since the beginning of time. My guest, Lee Eisenberg, who previously looked at our relationship to money and numbers, now takes on these questions with even more enthusiasm than Monty Python. Lee Eisenberg is the best-selling author of The Number. He's the former editor-in-chief of Esquire and has been a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including Fortune, Business Week, Time, Newsweek, and the New York Times Magazine. And it is my pleasure to welcome Lee Eisenberg back to the program to talk about The Point Is, Making Sense of Birth, Death, and Everything in Between. Lee Eisenberg, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Hey, no pressure, right? The, the meaning of life. The I meaning mean, of life, right? <laughs> I mean, if Monty, Monty Python can tell us, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, they told it really well, actually. <laughs> my, I, don't, I don't think my, my book is quite as funny as that, although it's funny. <laughs> On the other hand, it's a lot more entertaining than Aristotle, Plato, uh, Buddha and everybody else who's had a crack at the meaning of life. Do you think millennials think much about the meaning of life? I don't think they use that phrase, but I think they think about it a lot. Uh, I, ha- I actually have two millennial children, and this is the first book that I've, any, the first thing I've ever written that they actually uh, have interest in reading. Um, you know, a lot of millennials uh, famously walk around saying, I want to do something I love. You know, I deserve to do something for a job, for example. I want a job that I love. Uh, and um, getting, finding some satisfaction in what they do during the day, finding some sort of grounding in their life is uh, very, very important to them. Uh, I don't know that they use the phrase, as I said, but I think they're certainly looking for an anchor. Yeah, you know, one, one more point about that. Joseph Campbell, who wrote a lot about mythology, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, uh, used to talk a lot about how we don't have any models. We don't have the models that we used to. You know, once upon a time, we may have had the Bible. A lot of people still do. A lot of people don't. Um, back in ancient Greece, there was mythology that a lot of people could sort of hang their own uh, identities around. Um, once upon a time, we read fairy tales when we were kids, and that taught us a lot about good and evil and so on. But we're living at a time now where there's really not a lot of models that we can um, really attach our own lives to. So we, we seem to be adrift. Um, and what I tried to do with the book is try to explore, you know, how is it that we, 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 we make sense of our lives? Uh, how, how is it that we find a sense of purpose in our lives? Um, and uh, after three or four years, you know, I came up, I, th- I think, with some, some interesting ideas, at least as far as I'm concerned. In talking about the models, it's interesting. There certainly aren't those classic models that you're talking about. Unfortunately, the models have become things like A, celebrity culture, mm-hmm. and, and, and B, on a little more serious side, our fascination with memoir. Those two things, in many ways, provide some of the models today, for better or worse. Well, I think, I think the... I think you're right about both points. I think uh, one of the one of the things that's driving the interest in memoir, and that that really is a, an, a central point in the book that I talk about quite a bit, is is we we are turning to memoirs, either reading other people's memoirs or trying to write them ourselves, as a way of making 
life coherent um, as a way of, of giving it some 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 definition. Uh, if we if we can write it, um, we you know we might be able to see the the, the reason in it. Uh, and um, the the book I don't this is not a writing man. This book does not talk about you know how to write your life story, but but it does really center on the idea that we all quote unquote do write our life story continuously and without knowing it in our heads. Um, I, I became very interested in this idea that. When when we're about three years old, a couple of things happen. Um, the first thing is we start collecting memories, um, quite naturally, obviously. And as time goes on, we collect more memories, and more and more memories endure over time. Uh, the other thing that happens also at exactly the same time is we develop this capacity for narrative. We we develop uh, the ability to take memories or and to take experiences and put them in chronological order, more or less, uh, arrange those memories into so-called chapters of our life. And as we go through life, we are continuously adding on to the story, but we're also revising the story as we go along. And, and, and really, the, the, the central point of the book is it's in that story that we write inside uh, that we either find meaningfulness, we, the story makes sense and it means something, or it doesn't, it's incoherent. And, and so the book is really fundamentally about memories uh, and how we structure them such that we have, you know, some sense of coherence. You mentioned fairy tales before. That was often the earliest way in for for kids and for young people. I, I would argue that that celebrity culture has replaced fairy tale as sort of the earliest kind of dream narrative that that we attach. I think that's that's absolutely right. I think fame, you know, celebrity um, recognition in that sense, I think is very important. I think a lot of people also, you know, build their identities around money uh, or believe that if they had enough money somehow or other, their lives would, would be more, would be happier, if not more meaningful. Um, so we sort of reach out for, you know, these touchstones in the culture uh, as a way of, of giving ourselves another narrative that we might be able to attach um, ours to. You know, on the question of money, this whole idea started um, a number of years ago. I wrote a book called The Number, which you alluded to. And it was really a book about why we are so uncomfortable with money and what we are trying to accomplish with money. And um, I, I, I met a really interesting financial advisor who basically feels strongly that, that financial advising is, is, is really done entirely wrong, which is there's this great emphasis on how much do you need uh, in order to you know, feel secure. And his point was that until and unless we figure out what, what, who we didn't get to be in life or what we would most like to do in life, we're really just grabbing at air when we say we need a million dollars or five million dollars or, you know, whatever it might be. So he, 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 make, he, he encourages his clients to go through, a, you know, a pretty serious um, series of, of, of exercises so that they can arrive at the answer to who did I not get to be and who would I like to be. Uh, and once that answer is clear, then he can go and help them much more intelligently figuring out, okay, now how much money do you need to cover your basics, obviously, and, and, and to you know, eat and have clothes and a roof over your head. 
and then how much do you need to figure out how to get to what you didn't get to do prior to this? And what he finds is, you, you know, if I were to ask you, Jeff, like, who did you not get to be and what did you not get to do, you would have, you know, clearly very, a very specific and personal answer. It would be different from mine, I imagine, different from everyone else's. But when he gave this exercise to a great many people, you know, hundreds of people, our answers all seem to fall into a very small number of categories. Um, many of us say we never got to do something creative enough, that we have this sort of creative channel that we never really opened up to our own satisfaction. Or some, many of us say, well, we didn't give enough back you know, to a, to a church or to a school or to a planet or you know, Earth or whatever it might be. Um, many people say, well, I never closed an important relationship successfully, and I want to do that before it's all over. So there are really only about these three or four important types of things that most of us would like to complete before our days are over. Um, but a lot of us never go through the process of figuring that out. It's interesting. I mean, coming back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, one of the differences is in, in fairy tales as the basis for learning about story and narrative, we're not going to be the characters in those fairy tales. It cries out for metaphor and, uh -huh. and translates in a more metaphorical way to what we might want, what we might want to be, what we might want to do. With celebrity culture as, as the replacement, it becomes very specific, very tethered to people. And it becomes, you know, as Joan Didion said, the dream teaching the dreamers how to live. And, mm -hmm. and that's what I think is more limiting. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. The other thing about fairy tales, interestingly enough, you know, Bruno Bettelheim wrote, you know, a classic book about fairy tales. And, and what he, one of the most valuable aspects of, of fairy tales when young children read them is that they teach um, young minds that life is very unpredictable. Um, and that life, there's a lot of adversity in life. Um, some fairy tales are very frightening to children. Um, but at least one at a very early age begins to understand that in order to, to you know, successfully cope with life, you're going to have to successfully cope with adversity uh, or unpredictability, which uh, is, is a hallmark of most you know, fairy, fairy tales. We tend to think, and I think this is to your point, we tend to think that life really is, can be sort of one endless ribbon of highway that is ever you know, more successful and, and, and affluent and so on and so forth, uh, even though you know, we're disabused of that from time to time. But I think we still harbor the idea that that's possible um, because the kids aren't at an early age really beginning to understand that life is going to have, have a lot of serious ups and downs. Which is in part why people want to be told, and we're even seeing it in the political framework today, why people want to be told everything's going to be great, we're all going to be winners. People buy into that mythology. Yeah, they buy into that. And in, in fact, I just wrote an article for somebody um, in which I talk about the fact that, you know, we, as parents, for example, uh, from, we, we say from day one, uh, all I want for my kids is that they be happy. Uh, and, and then we say, well, of course, and healthy. That goes without saying. Um, and one of the things that changed me, a woman asked me a few months ago, did, did all of this talking, thinking about it and interviewing other people, did, it, did the book change me in any way? And I, I, without thinking about it, I said, yeah, it's changed me. I no longer say I, I want my kids 
to be happy. That all I want for my kids is to be happy. Uh, not that I don't want them to be happy, but what I really, what was very profoundly um, important as a, as a, as a epiphany to me in this whole thing is that happiness is not a ha- happiness is an outcome. You know, you, you can't set out to be happy. Uh, something has to give you a sense of well-being, and uh, I, I really came to believe that what what does give one a sense of one well-being is a sense that you're leading a life that's meaningful for you. So now, you know, if somebody asks me, what do I most want for my kids? I, I will say without, you know, without hesitation, I want them to lead meaningful lives. Now, you know, a meaningful life doesn't necessarily mean a happy life. You know, uh, Nelson Mandela spent 30 years in, in a cold, damp cell, uh, which is not a happy experience. Um, but, and a lot of people who do lead meaningful lives will say, well, they're not happy. But I would argue that it's kind of hard to be fundamentally happy unless you feel that you're being purposeful about something. It doesn't have to be, you know, some grand thing that gets you into the history books or, you know, you you cure cancer or, you know, anything like that. But it does have to be something that gives you a very strong, solid sense of purposefulness. And and that, in turn, I think will make you feel, okay, life's not so bad. In fact, life is pretty damn good. How much of this is universal in, in terms of how to look at it versus looking at it in the context of kind of Maslow's hierarchy, that, that because we have this class divide and there are different ways that, that people are approaching this, that, that, that meaningful or happy or all of these things mean such fundamentally different things. Yeah, well, I, I think that's true. You know, we've all read these surveys, uh, you know, when, when anthropologists go around the world and they ask, you know, both people in developed countries and undeveloped countries, you know, are you satisfied with your life? Uh, you know, Western culture, people who are living in the West tend to be less satisfied with their life. They seem to be more world-weary than, you know, tribes in Africa or Asia or other places. And, you know, the, the possible explanation for that is that there's a very strong uh, community still in place, a tribal community. There's a very strong extended family connection uh, that, may, that obviates a lot of issues that we seem to have um, in the West. Uh, there are rituals uh, that accrue to the tribe that, you know, we don't have too many rituals. Well, we have one coming up on Sunday. We have the Super Bowl, uh, and, you know, and we have Christmas morning. Uh, but we don't have too many rituals that, um, that, we, that, that give us a sense of, of belonging to something larger than ourselves. Um, so we, I think we tend to walk around very individualistic, um, and, and to that degree, I don't, I don't think it's universal. I think that does vary from culture to culture. Talk a little bit about that, how it varies from culture to culture, and, and trying to find these meanings and what all these things mean, mean really different things to different cultures. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, I don't presume to know what meaning means you know, in uh, you know, diverse cultures around the world. I, I, I have read and thought and wrote a lot about what it means to us and what, 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 what must we do to, to, to attain a sense of meaningfulness in our lives. Um, I don't know if you've, you've read it. There's a the classic book that I urge everybody to look at, uh, written by um, an, an Austrian psychotherapist and uh, right after World War II. Uh, his name is Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, which has now sold some 15 million copies you know, all, all over the world. And he, he made the point that um, 
Well, he very strongly believes that uh, until and unless you, you have a sense of meaningfulness, you real, you're going to be bored, you're going to be cranky, you might be deeply unhappy, you know, whatever it might be. And he, he, made, the, he made the strong case that, that, that accepting adversity uh, is, is crucially important to finding meaning. Um, loving the uniqueness of at least one other person, uh, accepting another person profoundly, faults and all, uh, is another uh, sort of way to find uh, meaning in life. Uh, having a calling, and it doesn't have to be a religious calling, but really being deeply committed to what you do, and it doesn't have to be a white-collar job. Um, he feels very strongly that work, uh, you know, we like to think, well, work is work, and play is play, and, and TGIF and everything else, but the, 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 the satisfaction that we take from doing a good day's work, whatever that might be, uh, he felt is, is very, uh, very important. And I think a lot of us, you know, know that we're, we're not getting it out of our nine to five and would like to find a way to do that. But um, we don't know how to replace it in our off hours. So, you know, we have a job that we don't particularly care about. Then we come home and, you know, we turn on television, which is diverting. Uh, and distracting, but you know, there there goes another day in which there really hasn't been anything that has uh, meant anything pr- profound to us, or or even deeply personal to us. It's interesting because it also goes to the changing nature, not just of work, but the changing nature of the workplace. That mm-hmm. that that there was a sense in the old workplace of of belonging, of being part of something, even if the work wasn't particularly satisfying. Now that the work exists uh, on its own, it becomes more important because it's untethered from from the corporation or the the workplace being as important. That yeah. the work itself becomes more important. And it, it it's also really untethered. Increasingly, it's untethered to other human beings because you know I don't know if, you know if anybody has ever spent time say in Silicon Valley and you go into the Google offices or mm-hmm. Facebook offices or, or really any office where, you know, the people are working in front of a computer monitor, people are not talking to each other very much. They, they typically will sit there with earbuds in, um, either listening to music and, and working, you know, face-to-face with their monitor uh, and not having a whole lot of uh, human interaction. And, you know, according to Viktor Frankl and others, you know, good social, important social relationships or, or family relationships, certainly, but social relationships have been shown time and time again to be a very important component uh, of, of satisfaction in life. And when you ask, you know, people, are you satisfied with life, generally speaking, these are people who, who have who have strong social connections with one another. And, um, and, 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 you know, we're living at a time where we're, we're so bound to electronic devices, including me, by the way. I'm not a Luddite. I'm not complaining, you know, why I'm complaining about it, but I, I don't reject technology at all. But nonetheless, it does tend to cut us off from social connections, which in turn are very important to our having a sense of belonging to something larger than ourselves. Uh, and, you know, maybe that circles back to what we were talking about at the beginning not a lot of models we we don't it's not easy to find something that's larger than ourself that we believe in you know we had god once upon a time but many of us don't have that anymore um so i think we're searching for something to believe in and um and and day-to-day life doesn't doesn't hand us too many easy alternatives and the social interaction that we do have, I mean, social networks, Facebook, for example, create a different kind of interaction. It has different results. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it does. Um, and, uh, you know, I think at one point it might have it might have been a helpful thing. But now, you know, who among us doesn't have X hundreds of friends? They're not even friends anymore. They're whatever people that right. that, that we let into our network. Um, and, and what happens on Facebook, and I do this myself, I'm guilty of it, is it becomes a, a really a channel for self-promotion. It, it, right. You know, it, it, I thought of something funny or something weird happened to me today, or I saw a great television show. It's all, it's all basically an amplification of oneself and not connecting to anything larger than oneself. Now, I think we're sounding very serious here. I want to make sure, <laughs> I, would, I would like to make sure that everyone understands that I, I also think this is an engaging read because what we haven't talked about, and I'm not inviting the conversation necessarily, is in order to make this all make sense to me uh, and then to a reader is I really had to sort of dive into my own life. Um, I didn't want to do it. I sort of dragged myself kicking and screaming into writing about myself and my memories, you know, good, bad, embarrassing, and indifferent. Um, and what I, what I really found is that that process of going back and really examining that life story that you've created in your head without ever really thinking about it in narrative terms or literary terms or journalistic terms was a very, very interesting experience uh, for me. And I think for a lot of people, if they were to think it through, I came up with this, this sort of weird idea that, unbeknownst to me, since I was three, I had this little writer, you know, sitting inside my, the folds of my brain, you know, probably with a tiny laptop or whatever, probably smoking cigarettes and drinking bourbon, who, who, was, who I assigned my, my life story, and that, and that whether or not I would find my life story was a satisfying one was really up to whether that little guy up in my brain had managed to write uh, a, a good story. And, um, and that really opened up a whole lot of ideas for me because, as you said at the beginning, I've been an editor, I was an editor for a long time at Esquire. And I think I know what goes into making a good story. And I think I know the pacing of a good story and you know, how, what a good turning point is and what a satisfying ending is. Because God knows I've, I've, I've wrestled with a lot of less than good stories when they were turned in by, by writers. So I think to begin to think of that little man or woman up there toiling away and, and are they missing the point? Are they, are they not using the right memories to, to build the story? Uh, are, are they distorting our memories? Because you know, memories are famously inaccurate mm-hmm. and, and often wrong. And, uh, but nonetheless, go back and really think of how that story got written or is getting written. Uh, and see if maybe the writer could have written it without without distorting anything significant. Could that writer have written a different plot line? It it also, I mean, you touched on it a moment ago. It relates also to what we remember, how we oh, internally yeah. edit that story, because it's not necessarily the truth or a truth. It's it's the truth of what we remember. And what we yeah, well, and also how we choose to revise memories, which mm-hmm. we do, as you as you just mentioned. Um, I, I, I took a pretty significant detour in my research to, you know, read about memories and how we, you know, how they, how, how we, how we sort of work them, revise them as needed. Um, the, the other, and, and what we use the memories for, even in sort of almost in real time, is that we use memories to create a character. You know, there's a character named Jeff that you've created for yourself. Uh, there are cognitive psychologists who would 
not call it a character, they would call it a personal myth. There's a personal myth called Jeff uh, that changes and evolves. But if, if, you've, if you've made your central character or personal myth some, a, a character that's not likely to find purpose, then that character is going to lead your story in a whole lot of bad directions. Whereas if you sort of sit and examine that personal myth that you've created and say, well, maybe the, maybe the memories would support a different, a different sort of personal myth, in which case uh, the story would, would sort of move in the right direction, I, th- I, I think, again, you're, you're on a better track to finding a real sense of, uh, of satisfaction in life. I mean, I guess the interesting question out of that is how old are you or how old can you be and begin to change that mythology and, and, and rework your own creation myth and rework no, all well, the you're stuff aware, I don't think age has anything to do with it. You know, I, I, when I was uh, just getting out of graduate school, I, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with myself. I had no prospects whatsoever. In fact, I had a personal myth, if you will, that I created for myself of this sort of noble failure. You know, I would wind up this guy who uh, had, it, had it in him to write the great American novel, but I would wind up, you know, drinking myself to death on Madison Avenue writing jingles. And I liked that personal myth. It was a very romantic personal mm-hmm. myth. Um, and then, without getting into all the details, uh, it's just a piece of good fortune landed on my head. I, I had almost nothing to do with it in terms of a job. And uh, I took the job, and it set me off on a career path that proved to be incredibly satisfying uh, to me. Uh, and I had to rewrite my personal myth. Because suddenly, you know, once upon a time, I was sort of John Keats, who was going to be dead at age 26. And then suddenly I was this guy who was lucky. Uh, So I I sort of had to not so much reject the old person, but I had to sort of impose on that noble failure a sense that, you know, hey, life can break the right way sometimes. Um, And I think once I was able to sort of fine-tune my personal myth, I was a whole lot happier uh, with myself. And I think we all tend, we all have the opportunity to do that uh, at any age, uh, but I don't know that a lot of us take the opportunity to sort of rewrite that character or have the character evolve in a literary way into a, into a more satisfying character. Lee Eisenberg, his book is The Point Is, Making Sense of Birth, Death, and Everything in Between. It's just out from 12. Lee, I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you.